Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 this morning. Seems to be a somber mood upon our church body this morning. And sometimes that's okay to, to just be still and know that he's God, that he's in charge, he's in control. I believe what we're experiencing in our nation right now is a deep spiritual unrest if you want to know what spiritual warfare looks like and how it's made man- when it's made manifest, just look at what's going on. And even at the time of Christ, the spirit world was in hyperspeed, hyperspace, if you will. They were moving about the demons, the demonic world, the dark, unseen realm around us was trying to figure out what he was doing at his first coming. It was a heightened sense of deep, spiritual activity going on and that always seems to happen throughout history when there's a a heightened spiritual activity that means Yahweh's on the move something is about to to break something's happening I do believe we're on the verge of a revival a national revival I might be wrong I could be wrong I sense it in my own heart my own life and yet this will not come without a fight without a war. You know, as a pastor, you think, you know, as you, it's kind of like life, you know, and you, when you're young, you think, you know, well, when I get married, you know, I get a little older, things are going to be easier. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth, right? <laughs> you, sorry to pop anybody's bubble here, <laughs> but it doesn't get easier. There's always certain phases of life that bring their own difficulties, and you would think that this growing popularity that Jesus have, I mean, he is spellbound the multitudes by his teaching. He is like nobody else that's ever been in the nation of Israel. He has spoke the truths of God, spoken with tremendous authority, tremendous grace. And the people are responding, there is revival in Israel. And yet, in all this super spiritual hyper demonic activity there is an opposition rising against him they want to condemn him they want to dist- they want to stop him they're not on board the leadership and the establishment and so as we pick up the story here in Mark's gospel Peter's version probably Mark is the Emuensis here, and he is the one who is writing it down. Verses 20 through 35, we see Jesus being defamed. We see him speaking on the unpardonable sin and the priority of relationship in regards to the kingdom of God. These three things Jesus addresses here in the midst of being opposed. Notice at the end of verse 19, which really should be part of 20 actually, and they went into the house, or into a house. Peter's house, is believed, was there on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, adjacent to the synagogue that was there. I have been there. I've actually taught in that the ruins of that synagogue a number of years ago when we were traveling in Israel. And they showed us where uh, Peter's, they believed to be Peter's house. So he had a nice little setup there, you know, right there on the Sea of Galilee, fishing business, you know, what what more could you, you know, churches right there, I mean, you know, what more could a guy want? And so Jesus took advantage of that situation. He used Peter's house uh, as a place, a base for which the fellows could eat and have their being, and then, you know, go to the synagogue regularly. It just, it worked out very well. And so uh, they went to the, to the house, apparently, you know, his version, after uh, Jesus had sort of brought the disciples together, and they were now sort of this group of 12 disciples with him. Uh, they meet there in the house, and of course, it doesn't take long for word to travel. People are watching uh, what's going on, and you know, chit-chat, chit-chat, and pretty soon you've got this multitude just gathering around the house and the synagogue and that whole area there in the northwest corner. Of the, and it's just 
completely packed. And so much so, as we read here, the multitude came together in verse 20 so that they could not so much as eat bread. I mean, they couldn't even grab a bite to eat. It was so crowded and, and the noise and everything that was going on, the activities. Verse 21, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. And so he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you that all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they have uttered. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. And then, in verse 31, his brothers and his mother came, standing outside. They sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he took, looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So, and again, you, know, you would think after preaching for many years, it would just be really easy, you know, just open your Bible and, you know, put a sermon together. <laughs> That's easy, you know, just do it. <laughs> and there are times that there's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's just, wow, that was easy. Here's the outline and here's the illustrations and, and you know, well, anecdotes and all, and it just sort of comes to you. And there's other times you just have to pull, 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 and hope it comes. <laughs> you know, who doesn't want to talk about Jesus being demon-possessed, you know? <laughs> or Jesus being crazy. Well, that sounds like a great subject matter for the Sunday morning service, you know? <laughs> so, hang on, we're just going to do our best with it, right? <laughs> so they went into the house and it's really busy and there's a lot of people. And the common people were gathering because they loved Jesus. Their needs were being met. I mean, people were being delivered from the bondages of the satanic grip that was upon their life. Their diseases were being healed. They're, they're now coming into a right relationship with God for the first time in their lives. They've been lied to by the establishments of what re really required to have a relationship with God. They were trying their best to keep the law, but they were utterly failing at keeping the law. And we all know what that means. We've got our little list that we feel we must do, and if we would do this list, then God will we'll find favor in God's eyes, and God will answer our prayers, and, and things will go well. Well, we sure find out that we can't keep a list and it's just nearly impossible to do those things that we feel God wants us to do and we just look at ourselves as abject failures. Well, that's what they were experiencing until Jesus came around and he began to teach them the ways of the kingdom and God's heart and intent, the mercy and the love and the grace, which what is what people so desperately need today. When you come to church, you need to experience the grace of God. That God is for us. He's not against us. As the Bible tells us in his heart towards Israel, even though they rebelled and were stiff-necked against him. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil. To give you a hope. To give you a future. Common people love Jesus. It's easy to understand. Why people love Jesus. 
And yet, he was rejected by his family. And I believe if you think about it for just a little bit, and I did try to think about this for quite a bit, actually. He, he was rejected by the rulers of the synagogue at Nazareth. He went and presented himself first there. And they, you know, they were going to stone him and throw him over the cliff, you know. And the Bible tells us in John 7, 5, that even his brothers, his family, did not believe him. And so, is that why they've now come? You know, no doubt that Jesus had brought some reproach to the family because, after all, the religious leaders weren't on board with him being messianic. You know, maybe they're thinking, come on now, Jesus, just, 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 just had an, you've had enough of this. I mean, really? We know you're a good guy. You did great carpentry work. You've done a lot of good. You've, yeah, you even exercised your priestly duties and you cast out demons and, and God's used you to, bring, to work miracles. But really? I mean, come on. Let's go home now. You know, maybe Mary was, you know, so concerned that her son wasn't eating like he should because he's so busy and he's, you know, they couldn't even get a bite to eat. You know, we're reading, oh, my son's suffering. You know, mom would have looked at, at it from a different vantage point. His physical needs are not being met because he's working too hard. And he's, you know, his, his blood sugar levels are really low and he's losing his mind. You can kind of put yourself in this situation. It's not hard to figure out. But I actually think it had to do with the family repu- reputation. You know, he's, he's, he's not doing well right now, we understand. Trying to make excuses for Jesus being the way he was and doing what he was doing. You know, the stress of the large crowds and this constant harassment by the establishment. I mean, you know, come on, let's just go home, Jesus. How would you like your family to call you crazy? They know you the best, right? I mean, we liked it better when you were a mess, you know. <laughs> At least we knew what we were working with. <laughs> I had a little of that myself, so I, you know, maybe in some of you You've made a, a clean break from the world. You're born again and you're serving the Lord and they're looking at you. What happened to you? I had several of my friends visit me actually over the years, you know, after my conversion years ago. I heard that you were a Jesus freak now. And I just wanted to see what that looked like. <laughs> You're still the same old guy. I mean, well, I mean, was I supposed to like, you know, get a face job or something or cut my hair and <laughs> well, we're glad to see you got your stuff together now, you know, those kind of comments. You know, some of you, you know, who've made a radical change, there's been a, a radical conversion in your life. People think you flipped out. Well, you're in good company. They thought Jesus flipped out, but he didn't. Well, he's just got this messianic complex, you know. Somehow he thinks he's the Savior, you know. I mean, isn't this what the world says? You know, Christians think that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And they don't say it in a sincere way, but in a mocking way. That they actually believe that he died on the cross for sins. That he actually rose again from the dead. And actually, it's been going on for a couple thousand years now, and he's sort of recognized as one of the great figures of history, you know. Where did this messianic complex word come from? Actually, it comes from secular psychology, Carl Jung. You know, the psychological labeling, you know, when, when certain people have this savior complex. Jesus didn't have a complex. He had a call of God. He was the Lamb of God. He was born that he might die. He was the Savior and is the Savior of the world. He's not like the Adolf Hitlers of the world that 
view themselves as savior of a nation. It's their responsibility to save the nation. You know, a lot of people thought he was the savior, but he deceived them. That's the horrors of World War II and the Pentecost in our history. So these people in Jesus' house, they heard what he was doing. They drew some conclusions, and they went out to lay hands on him. We're, you know, if you, do, you can come willingly or we're going to take you, this is getting out of hand. You know, how many of you have been threatened by your families that, you know, we're going to call for the people to put you in a, with the white suits and put you in a straitjacket? You know, there is something that radically changes in a person when they commit to Christ. There is a, a paradigm shift, a turning. You are different. And sometimes it does take weeks, months to sort of settle down and get, get a grip on how this applies in your life. So younger people respond differently. Everybody responds differently to their, in their conversion to Christ. Important thing is that you do have change in your behavior. There is repentance. There is a, a different you coming about. People became very can become very critical of you when they don't understand what's going on. You know there are those that you know after your conversion, and you know I've seen this. Um, they say, "Well, you're just too Christian," which I'm yet to define. Really, I don't understand what that means, but. You know, you're, you're trying too hard. What they really probably mean is you're taking yourself too seriously about things. You know, you're, you're, you're taking excessive measures in your life. You sort of have this legalistic approach, you know. This, you've got this, you know, you're not going to do these certain things that you did before because that led you into bondage. So you sort of, you know, develop this strict lifestyle. And so people look at it as, you know, you're, you're legalistic and, you're, you know, it's just, I, I don't want that kind of Jesus in my life, whatever you're doing, you know, that kind of a thing. You know, the dress codes, the no longer listening to trash music of sorts, your recreational activities have changed and, you know, you're just, you're just, you're boring, you're weird. You know, that, that happens to some people. And I don't know that it's wrong. It's just you've got, to, you've got to learn how to work through this conversion experience that you've had. There's nothing wrong with an aesthetic lifestyle. It, what is the problem with these, in these conversions is when those things become a form of self-righteousness. And I am now more spiritual and I'm, I'm saved and you're not because you're not doing what I think you ought to do. Those are, those when, that's when we cross the line. It's good to have a disciplined life. There are things you cannot do now that you've been converted. Others can, but you cannot. That was one of the phrases that the Lord gave me. Others can do certain activities. You cannot. Why? Because it would take me back into the world where I came out of, and I don't want to do that. It would damage my relationship with God. I don't want to do that. And so I'm not going to lay that conviction on other people. And it doesn't make me more righteous and more right with God. It just keeps me in a place of discipline where I don't fall and harden my heart and turn away from God. Now, when you see people that are, have been recently converted and they are going through this phase, just pray for them. <laughs> they need pr your prayers. But if they're, and, and especially if they're being used of God to bring other people into the kingdom. That's really sort of the tale. If they're out evangelizing, if they're out helping the poor, if they're out doing, their lives are beginning to be full of good works, then you know that that conversion is real. No matter how peculiar you might think they may be. Or how crazy that you might think they may be. It's just easy to criticize people who live godly lives. Because some people are threatened by that. It convicts them. Your life speaks to them. You wonder why your neighbor's sort of like, I don't know if I want to talk to George anymore, you know. There's just something about him that makes me a little uncomfortable. He's not like us anymore. Your life, your godly life, just the very presence of your godliness is a, uncomfortable to them. And it's not really you. It's 
the God you serve. It's the presence of God in your life that is creating this. And then there are those lukewarm people who, you know, name the name of Christ. They want the benefits that come with living a godly life because there are lots of benefits for living a godly life. They're not willing to surrender their self-will. They're not willing to make the sacrifices needed to have a close walk with God. They want to be in the world and do what they want to do and yet have everything that God offers in his kingdom and that doesn't really work out too well, does it? And so this resentment, this judgment of others who are on fire and being fruitful for God can become a threat to the lukewarm Christian where they begin to condemn and to judge others. This is really what was going on, I believe, in the hearts and minds of the Pharisees. They could not come to grips with the fact that the people loved Jesus. They wanted the people to love them. They wanted the people to respect them. After all, they were the gatekeepers. They were the ones who had the knowledge, the inside track to God. We want everyone to come to us. But they're not coming to us anymore. They're coming to Jesus. And how does he cast out those demons, you know? How is it that he is working these miracles? This love, the people could sense the love. The love that just emanated from his presence. He just, the way he treated children, the way he treated the lepers and the people that were the outcasts, these deplorables, you know. Jesus loved them. And they responded in kind and loved him back. And it was just too much for these hypocrites to handle. And so they accused him of being demon-possessed there, beginning in verse 22. He's doing all this because he has a demon. Lord of the flies, Beelzebub. His little kingdom is... He's king over the flies. It was a derogatory statement, obviously, to condescend Jesus, you know, to be condescending to him, that he's really not, I mean, of all the demons that he has, he's got one of these low-level guys. No mistake about it, Jesus was demonstrating supernatural power through his life. And so what people try to do with those that are, appear to be a threat or uh, are provoking something within insecurities or whatever, we want to label. We want to categorize people because that way we can marginalize them. We can render them insignificant. Render, render them irrelevant, really. They're just this then we can write them off. Because if we don't do this, then they're a threat to our plans and to our purposes. Now I'm going to say something here that I've thought about and I've prayed about. And it needs to be said. It needs to be said from the pulpits. The BLM and this social justice movement is an excuse to perpetuate a socialistic, communistic rule over our nation. It's nothing more than that. It's, a, it's masquerading as something that it's not. It is a political movement. They want to rule over a nation of people that have been made free. That's what our Constitution is all about. Keeping the citizenry free. The pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is what we're based upon. And the Constitution is our document for our republic. And they would love that destroyed. Albeit known, no Christian should bow to this. I will not bend a knee to the BLM or any of this social justice garbage. I will not. Neither should you. And people from the pulpit should be standing ground instead of pandering to these people. 
Why are we pandering as a church of Jesus Christ to this movement, pray tell? They, they do not want social justice at all. They want control and rule over your life and make you their slaves. It's bondage. Why? How do I know this? How can I say this? Because no political movement can ever bring lasting peace. The Bible's clear about this. Let's just stick to the scriptures, shall we? Why don't we just stick to what the Bible says instead of pandering to these people? I mean, after all, why can't you just go along with us, you know? You're a white man, and therefore you are a racist. Well, I am a white man, but I am not a racist. It makes, it's very difficult to, <clears throat> to prove a negative. You know, I, how do you deal with that? You're, you're labeled and boxed in, and then now you've got to try to, you know, somehow come up with an argument to disprove all that. And it's a typical communist socialistic move to sort of straight arm and shut the mouths of the people who oppose. Because if you disagree, then you're a hater. It's psychological manipulation. And if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it, you're going to get swept up into it. You need, as a Christian, to know the scriptures. So let's go to the scriptures when it talks about peace. Go with me, if you will. And there's some passion here, fellas, ladies. There's some passion in my heart about this. Because I know where this will lead. It's not hard to see where this will end if we don't take a stand against this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. That was the messianic role. He was the one to bring peace into this world. Now it's announced from his very birth. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. I mean, that was the announcement and the declaration of the angel who appeared there at his birth. Now, in Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, and so to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, he, might, he came and preached to peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him both we have access by one spirit to the Father. It is for everyone. It is for all mankind. It's not just for the Jew. It's not just for the Gentile world in that day. It is for all men for all ages. Our unity, our peace, of what they are clamoring for, thinking to obtain their objective by burning cities to the ground. Raising these cities like they are will never produce peace. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what we have. What this nation needs is to repent what this nation needs is to, to turn back to God, the God that we have forsaken. Our unity is not going to come about through some political movement. It will become because we are now as people right in our relationship with God and therefore willing to make amends with our relationships with each other. I therefore, Paul, you know, he's getting after it here. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with another in love, one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. If our unity will come about through our individual uniting with God. 
when we are right with God and at peace with God, then we can be at peace with others. Peace does not come from the outside in. Peace comes about from the inside out. God always works from the inside out. This is why he preached the Beatitudes. He was speaking to the citizens of the kingdom that would be citizens of the kingdom to deal with the inward man. In order to establish his kingdom on the earth, it had to establish it spiritually first. Nobody would be fit for the physical arrival of God's kingdom until they were first changed on the inside. If we want change in our nation, there has to be a turning back to God. There is no other way. It doesn't matter who the president is or who his administration helpers may be. Until there is a repentance and a turning back to God, this is what we will have. And this is why the church has to be the pillar and ground of the truth. We must tell the truth. We cannot continue to lie to ourselves about what's going on, that it will not affect us. If we don't take a stand, it will invade us. Think we've seen this, we're seeing this illustrated, brothers and sisters, are we not? These mayors who have pandered to these rioters, thinking that if they just let them do what they want to do, they'll be accepted. Well, where do they go? They go right to their doorstep and pound on their doors, and they want to burn their houses down. That's why they're moving. Do you think we're going to be safe because we just ignore them? And I'm not saying take up arms. What I'm saying, get on our knees. Get on our knees. This is why I'm preaching whole house, whole church prayer. We need to come together as the family of God because this is the battle. This is important. This matters. This is what matters. This is what counts. If we love our children, if we love our grandchildren, then we need to step up and pay the price. And that means sacrificing a little recreation time maybe to spend time in prayer Asking God for mercy upon our nation. Who are you going to bend the knee to? If we can't stand against that, how are you going to stand against the mark of the beast? How are you going to stand against the onslaught of the evil that's really going to come at some point in the future here? Just the perspective. Back and we'll finish up here. So one thing I, like, I love about Jesus. They're hammering him. You're, you're crazy and you're demon-possessed, and look how he handles himself. He explains to them exactly how he casts out the demons. You don't know, you know, you're con- considering that I'm demon-possessed? Well, here's how it works, fellas. So he called them, he called them in. You're going to say this, okay, fine. I, I get it. He questioned them. How can Satan cast out Satan? Just pure logic. Just absolutely destroys their argument in a moment. In a very loving, straightforward manner. And he reasoned with them. God is a God who can be reasoned with. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as red as scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. But let's talk about this. I'm not unreasonable. I'm not unfair. Don't accuse me, as he says through the prophets to the nation of Israel. Don't say that your, your ways are unfair. No, no, your ways are unfair, saith the Lord. You know, that's, that was the conversation back then. It hasn't changed much. How many people think that God is unfair? That God cannot be reasoned with? But look what he says. Divided kingdom cannot stand. A divided house cannot stand. Satan, if he goes against himself, will bring an end to his kingdom. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. What you're accusing me of doesn't make any sense. And so, what did he say? This is how, you, this is how it's done, fellas. I bind the strong man. And then I enter the house which represents the inner soul, the spirit of the person. I bind the demon. I render him powerless and speechless through my authority. And then I enter in and take the plunder. What is the plunder? 
The plunder is that soul is now free. Jesus was all about freedom. He was all about liberty. He totally destroyed their argument. But then he gave them a, a very stern warning. Verses 28 through 30. When he uses the word assuredly, you better pay attention. Now in the King James it may say truly, truly. But what he's saying with that use of that word is that look... What I'm about to tell you is very important. That's, what that, that's the significance of that word. Don't just blow by it. Assuredly. Oh, yeah, okay. No, it's important. All sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. Can you all just take a big sigh of relief with that one? <laughs> oh, man, that's, that's a load off my plate. Oh, let's relax. Let's are you relaxed now? <laughs> Your sins are forgiven. I'm telling you, that's, that, that's, no, that's no little matter right there. All sins that we could commit as the sons of men, the daughters of men, are forgiven, can be forgiven. That is an amazing gift of mercy that we should not overlook. And then all blasphemies, the curses that we've, in our pre BC days, before we were transformed, we cursed God. We hated God. We hated righteousness. Well, I'll speak for myself. You know, the only reason I didn't want to come to God is because I was having too much fun being a pleasure seeker, you know. But then he draws the line. There is a line where grace is no more and mercy does not cross. God does have a limit of which man does not know where that line is. And so it's a very scary thought. When you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, there's not forgiveness. What does that mean? Well, there I've had counseling sessions over with people, and I shouldn't chuckle, but when you understand what it means to blaspheme the Spirit, and someone calls you and says, I think I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I don't think God could ever forgive me. If you were, let's just put it out there right now. If you think you've committed the unpardonable sin by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and you're worried about it, that's an indication you have not committed it. Because if you commit this sin, you don't care. You don't care. It's beyond that at that point. In essence, what it means is to attribute the work of God to the devil. So all the healings, the casting out of the demons, the raising of the dead, all the miracles that Jesus was doing, they were attributing to Satan. That is blasphemy. That's what he's talking about. You see, these... Religious leaders had become an establishment. They'd grown into this deep state powerhouse, this religious swamp, if you will. And it needed to be drained. And Jesus was draining it down by the truth. These men held the keys to the knowledge of God. And as I said before, they, these guys were the gatekeepers of the oracles of God. They were the ones that were to bring understanding to the people of God. They were the ones that they were to demonstrate and show what God required of the people. But they fa failed miserably at representing God to the people. In fact, what they were doing, they were using their positions to simply just enrich themselves. And that's why Jesus did not fit their model. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a Messiah that would throw the yoke of Rome off their back and establish Israel as a free nation, of which they would be the leaders. And they would just simply exercise more dominating, manipulating power over the masses. So they were looking for a Messiah that would further empower them and enslave the people under their rule. You won't read that in, in any commentary, I'm pretty sure. But that's really what was going on. And Jesus' ministry fully exposed them for what they were. He let it play out. 
He let, he, let, he let them do what they wanted to do to him, say what they wanted to say. But when it was, and when they tried to capture him on several occasions, what does the scripture say? He went out among them and he, he left them. Where'd he go? Where'd he go? You know, God blinded, God protected him until, until the right time. My hour has not yet come. Until that, the, right, the time was right, then the Lord allowed Jesus to be taken, not prior to. And so, instead of loving him, they were plotting to kill him. You know, this is what people who, how you can know whether or not people are truly Christians or not. How do they handle the love of God? How do they handle it when you extend mercy and compassion to people? See, they couldn't stomach the authority and the power that Jesus was demonstrating in his ministry. When a person refuses to admit the good things that are going on are of God, there's really not much you can do for them. When you're attributing good works to the devil, there's not much you can do for them. Then his brothers and his mother came standing outside and they sent to him calling him. The multitude was sitting around and they said to him, look, your mother, your brother are outside seeking you. As he answered, who is my mother, my brothers? Then looking around, so they'd all gathered around in a circle. Jesus was ministering to them. Here are my mother and my brothers. And he, he made relationship with God based on obedience. So it's not do as I say, it's as Jesus would say, it's do as I do. For it's, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our love for God is demonstrated by our obedience to him. Now I've read that in John's gospel many times and, and I wrestling with my own fallen nature. It's like, Man, Lord, I, you know, I just don't love you as much as I should. I, I'm self-willed. I'm doing things that I want to do instead of things that you want me to do. And I realized, you know, in my spiritual growth over the years that I, that was my problem. I just loved myself more than I loved God. And that needed to change. And when I called it for what it was, then it began to change. <laughs> God did that transforming work, and so that's a hard thing to do. You know, when you, if you become self righteous, to admit your sins and confess your sins to God, but that's how we make progress, being honest with God. Lord, I, I want you to be on the throne. I want to do Your will. Your will is more important than my will. Deliver me from self. And so they were, notice there, they, the family. The, I mean, these are blood relatives here. They're on the outside looking in. How many people are outside looking in? They haven't yet confessed Christ. They haven't yet figured it out. They know about religion. They were probably raised in a Christian home, but they failed to really turn and repent. That's what we have. We have a church full of people like that. They, they go to church out of tradition or for whatever reason, but they really don't have a relationship with the Lord. They're professors only. Imposters, really. They don't know that yet. They don't, because they're not being exhorted. They're not being taught and encouraged to do the right thing. They're on the outside looking in. It's just really a sad state because you, you really can't make any progress in anything. You're trying to play both sides of the fence and you're caught. You're trapped. And so Jesus made obedience to God a priority for those in the kingdom. I don't think Jesus was trying to be harsh. I believe he was simply just trying to convey what's most important here. 
And we know that Jesus loved his mom, okay? I mean, who doesn't, whoever believes that he didn't, he's mistaken. Mom invites him and the disciples to the wedding at Cana, and they run out of wine. And mom comes to him. Hey, they're out of wine. <laughs> it's mysterious the way Jesus answers his mother, but, you know, whatever he says, just do it. <laughs> And he gives them all the wine they'll, they'll need and it's better than anything else they had, right? He did, what would happen if he had, if they had run out of wine? You talk about the family reputation being trashed. <laughs> the people at that wedding, hey, remember the wedding that was in Canaan when they ran out of wine? It would have been a forever experience for that family until the people died off, Right? They never would have forgotten. Jesus saved them from an embarrassing moment. How many embarrassing moments has he saved you from? Thank you, Jesus. So we know that Jesus loved his family. We know he loved his brother. But he put the priority. See, the priority is not on biological relationships. That's why you can go halfway around the world and meet somebody that's a true believer and it doesn't matter what color their how much what the level of their melanin is in their skin either and you can have a conversation with that individual and you just automatically there's a bond why is that or anybody else that comes and visits our church here and we meet with them and we talk with them and it's like automatically you know hey they're kin because it's not biological, it's spiritual. And that's what the kingdom of God is. So oneness, it's that unity in the spirit that we read about there in Ephesians. It's what the world needs right now. We have the answer. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the answer to our problem. Until we see God in the proper perspective and we're able to approach him in proper reverence with confidence it's not until we do that that we'll have intimacy with God you must respect God for who he is and having done so you develop this deep intimate personal relationship with him and then now that you're right with God, you can easily make things right with your fellow man. It's not, once you confess and get things right with God, it's easy to go up and say, man, you know, I really, I really, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm, I want to apologize for what I did to you, you know, years ago. That's really easy to do. God gives you more grace in, in those situations. And then there's peace, there's harmony. Because when people are harmed, an apology is in order. But understand, nobody really owes that to me as far as I'm concerned. I've released that judgment to God. That's what it means. You, you receive forgiveness, you extend forgiveness, and they don't have to necessarily ask for it. You've already surrendered that debt. You've canceled that debt. That's what sin is. It's a debt. You've canceled that debt, extended forgiveness. Now it's between them and God. If they come and they say they're sorry, that's good. Now you can really have fellowship again. And so that's really what happens is you, you may lack that fellowship until there is an apology. But as far as judgment goes, it's, it's ended with you. It's in God's hands. How do we keep that intimate fellowship going in our family relationships with God? Just worship. When you don't feel like it, worship. When you don't feel like it, just begin to praise God. You know, and you 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 get all emotional and you get you know sideways and you get all frustrated by what's going on in your life. You know, your scrambled eggs. Sometimes I mean, it just things are not working well right now. You know, those kinds of situations. You have one of those this week, <laughs> don't we all? Right. I have found that if I will just stop in the middle of all that chaos that's going on in my mind and just begin to worship the Lord, he who keeps his mind on me will be at peace.
That's the truth that the scripture conveys. If you keep your mind on God, you get your mind on God, immediately result of that will be peace. There is no peace to the wicked, saith the Lord. But the righteous, we have peace because we worship. So I want to encourage you this week. Said some pretty tough things for some, maybe this morning. But the most important thing you can do this week is spend time with the Lord. Let's pray our prayers. God knows we need to do that. We know we need to do that. That's the only thing that will save our nation. That will only be the only thing that really saves us. So spend time with him, lifting up your needs to him, knowing that he is for you. He's not against you. There's more on our side. There's more on our side than on that side. You do get that, right? God is for us. Who can be against us? Amen? Shall we stand? This is a line that I lay on my wife and my children over the years quite regularly, actually. And I'm going to lay it on you guys. Do you ever think about how much God loves you? If you, if you don't, you need to. God loves you with an everlasting love. Father, we thank you that you do. Your love is great, Lord. We thank you for the promises in your word that you are truly able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever think or ask. And we're asking, Lord, now, this week, and forevermore, that you would come and be king in our midst, that you would help our nation and help our relationships, that you would heal our families, that you would heal our communities, that you would heal our nation, Lord. Please hear our cries as we petition you. Please send revival throughout this land. Visit us, Lord. Without your visitation, we are doomed, Lord. Please bring us to repentance as a people before you. Please cleanse your church, Lord. Make us a church without spot, without wrinkle before you, Lord. And in our obedience, Lord, please fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.